Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am beginning the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. In this audio, I'm going to examine chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which consists of Paul's greeting to the church at Corinth. But before I do that, we're going to go over some introductory matters to the book. Who was the author? Well, unquestionably, it was Paul. Paul says so himself in the first two verses of this section in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul identifies himself. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus, dot, 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 verse 2, to the church of God at Corinth, to God's church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, 21, he signs off the same way. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul, as he writes after the amanuensis' text, he puts his own personal signature there. So it's Paul wrote the book. Church father said so. Clement of Rome said so. Almost all modern scholars say so. Even liberal scholars say so. And if you can convince a liberal that the guy who said he wrote the book is the guy who wrote the book, then you know it's got to be true. When was the book written? Roughly 55 A.D., some people say between 54 and 57 A.D. Of course, all these dates are a little bit sketchy between one and two years, maybe three years off. I've got some good chronologies I'm going to introduce to you in just a minute. It was written toward the end of Paul's three-year residency at Ephesus. That was on the third journey. Here's Mark A. Copeland, who's got an online commentary. He says it was written probably in the spring of 57 A.D., shortly before the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, during his third missionary journey. And I think that fits with what most everybody says, or, or close to it. Here's a passage at the end of the book which will help date it, 1 Corinthians 16, 5-9. I will come to you, Paul writes to the Corinthians, after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. This is again, he's in Ephesus on the third journey in that three-year period, and he's planning on going through Macedonia. He's That's where he is on the third journey. He's in Ephesus. And he's writing to Corinth, and he says, And perhaps I will remain with you even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me, yet many oppose me. So he says, I will stay in Ephesus as he's writing to the Corinthians. So that's how we know he's he's writing. That's how we know that he wrote from Ephesus, and he was in Ephesus during the, on the third journey, that three-year stay. And so that's how we know, that's how we can locate the or, or narrow down the time frame for when this letter was written. In Acts 20, verse 31, on the way back from the third journey, on the way to Jerusalem, when he stopped in Miletus to see the Ephesian elders, he said this, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears. So he tells the Ephesian elders, he reminds them he was with them for three years. So that's how we know he was with, in Ephesus for three years on the third journey. That was before he crossed on over into to Corinth and then came back and stopped by to see him on the way to Jerusalem. Stopped by Miletus, the port city, on the way to Jerusalem. Now, when was the Corinthian church? It was established somewhere between 50 and 52 on Paul's second journey, as Wikipedia says. The English Standard Version, their notes say approximately 49 to 51 AD was when the Corinthian church was started. I'll give you a more complete timeline in just a minute. The city of Corinth was noted for commerce. It controlled the Isthmus of Corinth. It had ports on both sides of the Isthmus. There was a land route across the Isthmus so that small ships could be carried east or west to get to the ports. Larger ships could be unloaded, and then the stuff carried across the Isthmus and then reloaded on the other side. So, therefore, the city of Corinth was a entrepot, if you will, a crossroads of trade between the east and the west. From the east, Corinth took 
commerce from Phoenicia, Asia Minor, and Egypt. And from the west, there was trade to Italy and Spain, to and from Italy and Spain. So it was an important commercial city. It was a Greek city. It was not a university town like Athens was, but I say university town. I'm using that metaphorically. And there weren't any universities back then, but there were lots of academies and philosophers running around all over the place. The academy, the Lyceum. But the Corinthians liked Greek philosophy like all Greeks did. They placed a high value on wisdom. As far as their religion, they had 12 temples. They were extremely pagan. For example, the most notorious temple they had was the Temple of Aphrodite. At one time, that temple had 1,000 temple prostitutes. This might give you some background for why Paul was so concerned about sexual immorality at Corinth. Man, they were living fat, footloose and fancy free in that city. There was another temple to Asclepius, the god of healing, and one to Apollo. God, Apollo had temples everywhere, like at Delphi, Delos, and uh, you know he was everywhere. He was a big god back then. He was in Corinth also. It's not sure whether all these temples were operating at the time of Paul. They've just found 12 temples over the time. That's a lot of temples, a lot of pagan temples. So it was an extremely pagan city, and it was, as I mentioned earlier, immoral, characterized by immorality. In fact, there was a new Greek word that was invented back then that was coined to Corinthianize. In other words, if your culture becomes Corinthianized, that means it's full of immorality. Or if your family was Corinthianized or your wife or whatever. So the temple of Aphrodite shows that they were immoral. Aphrodite, of course, was the goddess of lust, not love, as they taught us in high school and college. She was not the goddess of love. She was the goddess of lust. There was nothing lovely. There was not, nothing about love. Now, Athena was... She was more into family stuff, but Aphrodite was just straight out, let's get it on. And all commercial cities are typically immoral, especially ones that are located next to seaports. That's been true of all times. Take Shanghai, for example, famous for its immorality back in the 30s, 1930s. What was the occasion and purpose of Paul writing this letter? Well, he was responding to requests from Corinth for help. Now, this is all the trouble that the Corinthians were having. In verse 11, we see that there is rivalry among you. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. We'll see there's all kind of division. That's in our next audio, next verse, after starting in verse 10 in chapter 1. Lots of rivalry, some of Paul, some of Apollos. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. They were having problems with sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, about food offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. This is what people eating food to idols with a good conscience, which is all right, but they were causing their weak brothers to stumble. We go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. And then we know, of course, that the Corinthians had a lot of trouble with spiritual gifts because they weren't operating them properly. They were operating them with arrogance and not with concern for the weaker members of the body. And then we go to 1 Corinthians 16.1. This is not a immoral or a failing on part of the Corinthians, but they needed some information about the collection for the saints. That was the poor collection that Paul had collected from the four provinces all over the, all of his churches. He took money up to send it back to the Jerusalem saints. He said, now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. So that's a lot of stuff Paul's got to instruct the Corinthians on. We can get a lot of practical stuff out of this book. Now, let's mention a little bit of the background of the letter. This is from the ESV Study Bible. Paul wrote an unknown or lost letter from Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 5.9. We see that. It dealt with sexual immorality. Paul received back an oral report from Chloe's household. He sees that they misunderstood his first letter. 
1 Corinthians 5.10, he says this, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. So apparently he had written back to them, hey, keep your zippers zipped up. Be moral and don't have anything to do with those nasty, immoral fornicators or those greedy people and those swindlers or idolaters. And so then the, the Corinthians mistook him to say, oh, we can't even talk to him anymore. And Paul said, no, no, you can't do that. You'd have to go completely out of the world. I just mean, it means just don't participate in their immorality. That doesn't mean you can't, can't treat with them as human beings or as co-workers or whatever. However, you have to deal with them. All right, so Paul gets these, he gets uh, this unknown letter from Ephesus. Excuse me, this is not, he wrote, excuse me, he wrote an unknown letter from Ephesus and then he received all sorts of problems in the church were orally relayed to Paul as an occasion for this unknown letter. Now, he receives back a, a lost letter from the Corinthians. He, had, he not only had oral, oral questions from the Corinthians, he got, a back, he got a letter from the Corinthians at about the same time the oral report came back, and that revealed all sorts of theological confusions in the church. The letter didn't mention any moral problems like sexual immorality and division, but the oral reports did. The letter only had theological problems, and some and the ESV speculates the study Bible speculates that perhaps the immoral things were left out on purpose because they didn't want to air their dirty linen in public. Maybe they were too embarrassed to bring it up to Paul or whatever. But it wasn't mentioned. Only theological things. The oral stuff came to Paul about the the sexual immorality problems. So First Corinthians is Paul's response to this letter, this lost letter from the Corinthians, and this oral report from the Corinthians. Now, the theme of the letter is dealing with practical problems of Christian conduct, as I've sort of indicated already, and we can put it in more elegant theological terms, progressive sanctification. How can you, in the midst of this sinful world, in the midst of your own fleshly sins, how can you shed those sins and become more and more Christ-like and be transformed into the image of Christ to which you were predestined to before the foundation of the world? And Paul starts talking about practical ways you can do that. I've already mentioned the place of origin of this. I think I did. It was in Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey. Now, let me give you a chronology of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. This is from a an Internet writer named Paul Barnett. I believe the dates are close. Of course, you can quibble with the dates. You can always quibble with dates. But I think this is this fits pretty good here. First, between 50 and 51, ESV says 49, but Barnett says between 50 and 51, Paul founded the church in Corinth. This was on the second journey. We get this from Acts. This is in Acts verse chapter 16, 17, and 18. Paul stayed there for, for 18 months, if you recall. Then in 54 from Ephesus, when he's back in Ephesus, he wrote the previous letter to Corinth, and that's now lost. That was on the third journey. And then in early 55 from Ephesus, still on the third journey, he wrote a second letter, which is our first Corinthians, as I've already said. That's 55 is roughly when the letter was written, the letter we're looking at now, First Corinthians. And then later in 55, when still on the third journey, he made a second or painful visit to Corinth, hopped over from Ephesus to Corinth. And then back in Ephesus in 56, still on the third journey, he wrote a third letter, the tearful letter, which has now been lost. And then later in 56, on the third journey from Macedonia, probably Berea, he wrote his fourth letter, which is our second Corinthians, still on the third journey. Then in late 56, early 57, Paul made his third and final visit to Corinth, which was on the third journey. He stayed there for three months, where he wrote Romans. So most of his relationship with Corinth was on the third journey. He was either there in Corinth or he was in Ephesus. 
he had started the church in, on the second journey in 50 and 51, but most of every, all the other relationship between Paul and Corinth was on the third journey. And then after he wrote the book of Romans, he takes off from Corinth for Jerusalem with the Jerusalem poor collection. All right, with that lengthy background, let's begin with verse 1 in 1 Corinthians. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul calls himself an apostle. He uses this in his salutation in all of his letters, in all of his letters, but three. He didn't call himself an apostle in Philippians, Second Thessalonians, or Philemon, probably, in my opinion, because he didn't need to appeal to his authority too much because he had such a good relationship with the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and personally with Philemon, that's just my guess. He needed to establish his authority, however, in Corinth, as the NIV Study Bible points out, because his authority had been challenged in Corinth. We see in 1 Corinthians 9, the Corinthians were saying that Paul had no right to financial support. And we see in 2 Corinthians 11, the Corinthians are listening to false apostles, but they're not listening to Paul. So he had to say, look, guys, I'm an apostle called by Jesus Christ, by God's will. Again, God's will, that's to establish his authority. Who is this Sosthenes that Paul is including in his greeting there at Ephesus to the, in the letter to Corinth? Here is the best option as to who he might be. There's no proof, but we think it might be. The synagogue ruler at Corinth who was assaulted by the Greeks. Now, the NIV Study Bible and John Gill and Adam Clark think this is the same Sosthenes that Paul had met in Corinth. We read that. We read this about Sosthenes in Acts 18.17. Then they all see Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Gallio, that was the judge, brother of Seneca, famous Stoic philosopher. Why they were beating Sosthenes, I remember. I can't remember why they might have been doing that. I think they might have been upset because their charge against uh, Paul had not stood up. The, the Jews, uh, the synagogue leader had not managed to make the charge stick, and so they got mad at him. At any rate, he apparently later got converted Either Paul or Apollos, while they were in Corinth, converted him, according to the NIV Study Bible. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Gallio had driven the Jews who accused Paul from the judgment seat. And that's why I say that's probably why they beat Sosthenes, because they were upset because they didn't get their hearing before the Roman judge, and so they had to take it out on somebody. Gallio had driven the Jews who accused Paul from the judgment seat. The Greek mob, who disliked Jews, took the opportunity then of beating Sosthenes, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. Now, this is going a little far afield, but the question is, is why would they beat Sosthenes? He was the leader of the Jewish synagogue. Gallio dismissed his case. I mentioned, I think I mentioned previously in this audio, that the Jews beat their own synagogue ruler because he was unsuccessful in presenting his case. But that's not the only option. Another option is that the Greeks beat Sosthenes, not the Jews. In fact, the KGV translation says the Greeks beat the Jews, but Adam Clark says there's lots of manuscript evidence against the KGV saying the KGV is wrong, that there is no evidence that the Greeks beat the Jews. But the NIV study Bible leads to this option that it was the Greeks that beat the Jews, the idea being, well, the Jews are unprotected at this moment because they just lost their case against the Roman magistrate, therefore the Jews... Gallio was not very sympathetic toward the Jews, and so let's go get them now where we got the chance. Well, that would explain why all of a sudden the Greeks got upset with the Jews. You would have to say, well, they've been mad at the Jews for a long time, then they saw their chance. And then you say, well, why would they beat somebody in front of a judge? Well, because the judge just dismissed their case. Okay, that's a, a side side note. The point is that this Sosthenes, if he's the same Sosthenes that Paul's referring to in 
1 Corinthians 1, he got saved somehow, either by Apollo when Apollo showed up in Corinth or by when Paul was there in Corinth. Was in, Paul was in Corinth several times. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's who it is. Now, why would Paul mention Sosthenes in the greeting of the letter? Well, here's an option. Perhaps he had become a fellow minister and a companion of Paul in Ephesus. Maybe he had moved from Corinth and moved on over the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. Or perhaps it's because Sosthenes was well known to the Corinthians and would give weight to Paul's letter, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Paul is called as an apostle. He was called on the very first journey. Before the first journey, Acts 13, as they, the five brothers, and the church at Antioch were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. It's a great thing to be called by God to do a work. When you know you're doing the right thing, you put up with a lot of stuff, as Paul had to do. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Now, the thing we have to notice here, remember the church at Corinth is notorious for its sexual immorality, its divisions, its abuse of spiritual gifts, its abuse of the Lord's Supper. I didn't mention that before. It was uh, its, its sanctioning, uh, its refusing to discipline sexual immorality. I mean, the church is doing everything wrong. And what does Paul, how does he start out addressing them? They're sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means you're a saint. It means you're holy. You're, they were called as saints. Those Corinthians were saints, despite all the sin they were doing. Now that put that we'll let, I got a lot. There's a lot of theology we could get into there, which we won't. But it's something to take note of. With all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, both the Corinthians' Lord and Paul's Lord. Paul is showing his unity with them. He's using typical rhetorical. I don't want to say trick method, I guess you'll say, of identifying with your readers, saying nice things about them first before you lower the boom on them. Paul was called as an apostle. The Corinthians were called as saints. And Paul, notice G, Paul says those in every place. There was lots of other places that people believed besides Ephesus and Corinth. What does sanctified mean? I said it meant holy. Here's a more full definition. Set apart, separated, consecrated to God, dedicated to God, made holy. That comes from the NIV Study Bible, Clark. I added a few things myself. There's two kinds of sanctification. This is standard theology. This is from the NIV Study Bible. There's positional or definitive sanctification. That's the kind of sanctification that everyone gets when they're saved. The Corinthians had that. They were sanctified and called as saints. Now, they didn't have too much progressive sanctification because, you know, they had a lot of problems. But they, at the time they were saved, they were sanctified. How do we know that? Here's a classic verse on that, Hebrews 12:14. The author says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness without it. No one will see the Lord. Holiness means sanctification. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Well, if they're saved, they're going to see the Lord. As Paul obviously says, they will. They are saved. They're called as saints. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus. So they're saints. So therefore, they have definitive sanctification. They are sanctified at the beginning. They need to grow a lot more, but they're sanctified. Oh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention. They were uh, doctrinally immature, they wouldn't study the Word, and they were still stuck on the milk of the Word. I forgot about that. Lots of problems in this church, but he still called them saints. He said he, they're called as saints, and what he's implying here is, Corinthians, you need to live out your calling. You're called as saints. You've been separated to God, separate from the world, and dedicated to God. So let's, why don't you act like it and live like it and progressively become sanctified? We go to 1 Corinthians verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God, I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. 
that by him you were enriched in everything in all speech and knowledge. Now, grace to you and peace is the common, usual salutation that Paul uses in all of his letters, and, it, and as a result, he tend to get a little trite when we read it, but grace, peace, nothing trite about that. Grace, unfavored, unmerited favor shown by God to the Corinthians. And, of course, he's emphasizing peace because they have a lot of divisions and fighting and squabbling, and so he's saying, hey, I want you to have peace. They especially needed peace given their divisions. Paul says that the Corinthians were enriched in everything, Paul never complains about what the Corinthians were doing good, obviously. He starts out, in fact, praising the Corinthians for their strong points. He did the normal rhetorical thing. You start with the good news before you deliver the bad news. All that division, sexual immorality, abuse of spiritual gifts, immaturity, screwing up the Lord's Supper, the lack of church discipline against sexually immoral brethren. He had a lot of complaints he had to make, so he's trying to encourage them before he gets started. He says one of the things he says that they were enriched in was all in all speech and all knowledge. Now, what could he be referring to here? Well, speech could refer to their natural rhetorical gifts. Remember, the Greeks were, many of them, trained in rhetoric. The sophists went around charging people to, to train them, to, to train their clients in how to present law cases and how to give speeches how to sweet, persuade people, how to recite poetry, whatever. They were, they were very good with speech. And the Corinthians were Greeks. So that's not surprising that they were, that they were strong in natural speech, but also probably words of wisdom, the spiritual gifts that he's going to refer to in 12 and 14. He says, hey, you did fine. You're doing great, man. You have prophetic revelation. You give words of speech, words of wisdom, words of revelation. You're good at that. All knowledge, he says, that's talking about spiritual knowledge. I don't think he's talking about philosophical knowledge. I think he's talking about spiritual knowledge. Remember a word of knowledge, as Paul says, one of the spiritual gifts was. So he's referred to the gifts of the Holy Spirit when he's talking about speech. And knowledge. speech could refer to prophecy and tongues. Knowledge could receive, refer to the word of knowledge. So he, I think he's referred to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then I've studied Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I'll say that, referring to 1 Corinthians 12, 8. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, Second Corinthians 8, 7. Now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge. And so then I've studied Bible concludes, concludes that Paul is probably referring here to the spiritual gifts enjoyed by the Corinthians. But as I just mentioned, I think he might also be referring to Greek rhetoric at the risk of contradicting myself because I earlier said I didn't think it was Greek philosophy and Greek speech. I really don't think it. Paul was referring to that, but it could be. It could be speech and Greek philosophy knowledge. It could be natural gifts as well as spiritual gifts. John Gill agrees with me on that. Could be just basic Christian doctrine the Corinthians are good at, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Now notice Paul says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you. Always. Now always doesn't mean 24-7 every second of the day. It means in a continual fashion. Every day that I pray, I'm praying for you, Corinthians. And that makes sense. He started the church. It has a lot of problems. What do you do when you got people that you lead to the Lord and they, well, you keep up with them. You just can't help it. They're your spiritual children. And then when they start screwing up, it's just like your own children. When they screw up, you don't like it. So Paul says, I'm always praying for you. I'm always thanking my God for you. I'm thanking my God for you crazy Corinthians who are making my life miserable. And making me worried to death with all your sexual immorality, your division, your abuse of spiritual gifts, abuse of the Lord's Supper, your spiritual immaturity. I'm praying for you. I give thanks to you. 
Now, I, I emphasize that because it's real easy to get upset with carnal, youthful, immature, stupid Christians who are doing stupid things. It is really easy to get upset with them and to get impatient with them. Notice how impatient Paul was. He put up with a lot. He, he thought they were redeemable, and he kept instructing them and exhorting them. And we're going to find out later by the time we get through Second Corinthians. Yeah, they straightened up. They righted the ship. He always thanked God for those troublemakers. I was just t- telling another friend of mine who was having trouble with this woman who was bucking some common sense financial solutions that my friend had for the mission he was in, the uh, the Christian, not a mission, but the Christian organization he was in. And I gave him that old saying, you know, hey, to live with our brothers and sisters in glory, it'll be a wonderful thing to live them with with them in glory. But here on this earth, it's a different story. But Paul stuck with them and they came around. Paul said the same thing to the Philippians. He says, always praying with joy for all of you, all the time in his prayers, consistently, habitually. Now notice that Paul says in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 1, I thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. I always like to translate in as in union with, and it can be done. I've checked this out. Because of God's grace given to you in in union with Christ Jesus. That's how you get God's grace, is in union with Christ Jesus. Much better to just say in Christ Jesus. We don't even pay attention to those little prepositions. We're in union with him, though. We have koinonia with Christ Jesus. We get lots of grace. You develop that relationship with Christ Jesus, that koinonia with Christ Jesus, and you get close to him, you get more and more grace. Unmerited favor. I think any Christian will testify to that. We go to verse 6, 1 Corinthians 1. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul starts out verse 6 by saying, in this way. In what way? Well, he's probably referring to the last few words of verse 5, which says that, which says that the Corinthians were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. And if you take that speech and knowledge to refer to the spiritual gifts, well, then Paul is saying through spiritual gifts, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I think that's probably what the answer is. Alfred Barnes agrees with that. The Greek word that's Greek phrase that's translated in this way is enkathos or kathos in this even as, but that means in this way. He Barnes says this, the force of this expression seems to be this. The gospel of Christ was at first established among you by means of the miraculous endowments of the Holy Spirit. Those same endowments are still continued among you and now furnish evidence of the divine favor and of the truth of the gospel to you, even as, that is, in the same measure as they did when the gospel was first preached. The power to speak with tongues, etc., 1 Corinthians 14, would be a continued, a continued miracle and would be a demonstration to them then of the truth of Christianity as it was at first. Now that's Alfred Barnes. I doubt he was charismatic. I think he wrote in the, when did he write? 1800s? Long time ago. Maybe it was the early 1900s. I can't remember. But I, I can speak personally from personal experience. Yeah, when you speak in tongues or when you see a miracle done, that is amazing how it confirms the truth of the gospel. It just does. This there's just no other way to say it. Now, unfortunately, cessationists won't ever get that confirmation. They don't need it. They have the Bible. That's fine. But when you see a miracle done or when you speak in tongues and see the miracle done when you're speaking in tongues, you see the edification that comes from that, well, then that's a confirmation. The testimony that was preached to you about Christ is confirmed by your daily experience. And that's what happened with the Corinthians. Now, 
what was confirmed? The testimony about Christ, Paul says in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul's preaching about the salvation in Jesus. His testimony about Christ was the salvation that you could get in Jesus Christ. NIV Study Bible, Glill and Clark say that. And, of course, that was during Paul's one-and-a-half-year visit on his second journey to Corinth when he established the church. Now, this idea about miracles confirming the word, not the apostles now, not confirming the apostles. It's not necessary. An apostle can be an apostle even if he doesn't do any miracles. Who was that famous saint, that Boniface, Boniface, I think it was, 7th century saint that evangelized all of Germany? He actually got some flack over that because he didn't do miracles. Lots of these early, other early apostles who were evangelizing the wilds of present-day Europe, they did do miracles, but not Boniface. But he's still an apostle. And likewise, you've got a bunch of people who aren't apostles doing miracles. I've done, I've done a few miracles. I've seen miracles done on me. I'm not an apostle. I mean, so that, that's a different theological point. That it, it, I know where that comes from, but it's, it's, a, it's a myth. It's not true. But what's confirmed is not the apostle, but it's the word, the testimony, as Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed, not the apostle who was giving the message about Christ. We read in Mark 16, 20, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the accompanying signs. What was confirmed? The word not the apostles, and how was the word confirmed? By signs, i.e. miracles. Galatians 3, 5. So then does God, supply with you, with you, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, by hearing with faith? So God's doing miracles among the Galatians. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. This is the classic verse about this. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us? There's that word confirmed again. To us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders. So the confirmation is done by God's testimony, and God's testimony was done by signs and wonders, i.e. miracles, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. So the word is confirmed by not just signs and wonders, but by prophecy, by tongues, all kind of other stuff too, miraculous gifts, words of wisdom, words of revelation, gifts of the Holy Spirit confirm the word. Not the person given the gift, not the apostles, but the word is confirmed. We go to 1 Corinthians 1, 7. So that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's probably referring to the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, which he's going to get to in a minute. He's being positive right now, saying, oh, you're doing good with spiritual gifts. He's going to get on their misuse of those gifts in later chapters. Now, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the KGV has coming. Holman Christian Study Bible has revelation. What are the options here? Revelation when? The coming when? The second coming? Well, if the first Corinthians were eagerly waiting for the second coming, they were sadly mistaken. Or is it eighty seventy that they're eagerly waiting for, for Jesus to come back and judge the Jews. Well, let's see what John Gill says. It is difficult to say whether the apostle means the final judgment or our Lord's coming to destroy Jerusalem and make an end of the Jewish polity. As he does not explain himself particularly, he must refer to a subject with which they were well acquainted. As the Jews in general continued to contradict and blaspheme, it is no wonder if the apostle should be directed to point out to the believing Gentiles that the judgments of God were speedily to fall upon this rebellious people and scatter them over the face of the earth, which shortly afterwards took place. Unquote. This is, of course, afterwards took place in AD 70. And 
this is a, a question that arises a lot of times. People say, well, why would people in Corinth care about what happened in 87? you got to remember there were Jews in every city all over the Roman Empire. Remember in Corinth, it was the Jews that took Paul before Gallio, the Roman magistrate there. Well, if, eight, if Jerusalem had been destroyed in 8070, that would have been it for the rabbis. They wouldn't be taking anybody before any courts. And so Paul's saying, as you wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his coming in judgment on these wicked Jews who are hindering the gospel, you're going to be blessed with spiritual gifts. I believe that's what he's talking about. I don't believe he's telling the Corinthians to wait for the second coming because it was 2,000 years later than that, I think. Jesus made no prediction about when he was coming back finally at the end of time. He did make a prediction about 87 in Olivet Discourse, when one stone was going to be torn down one upon the other. 1 Corinthians 1.8, He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This reminds us of what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, what is that day? Day in general is, it means a day of judgment. It can mean any time. It can be the end of an historical period in the Old Testament. It can mean anything. It just means that there's judgment coming. And, of course, we have the same problem we always have. Is this referring to the end of time? He will strengthen you to the second coming of Christ, to the end, to the second coming of, of Christ, or he will also strengthen you to eighty seventy, to the end of the Jewish polity. Well, the people who say that it's the second coming, the NIV Study Bible says that, and John Gill says that. Adam Clark says, on the contrary, it's 8070, in that day, in the day that he comes to judge the world according to some, but in the day in which he comes to destroy the Jewish polity according to others. Well, I shouldn't say he, Clark doesn't say it's 8070, he just, he's, he gives it as an option. Well, I think it's 8070. How are the Corinthians going to be strengthened all the way to the end of time? They're not going to live to the end of time. The Corinthian church is going to be there in 8070. That makes a lot more sense. The Corinthians couldn't be strengthened all the way to the end of time. Think about that. How are you going to do that? How are you going to be strengthened when you're dead at the second coming of Christ? We go to verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll finish up our first section here in 1 Corinthians. God is faithful, Paul continues. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How is God faithful? Oh, let me back up a minute. Got one other thing to say about verse 8. Verse 8 says, he will strengthen you to the end. This is a minor point. Is that Jesus or is that God? Well, the context favors Jesus because the end of verse 7 says, the end of verse 7 says, as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will also strengthen you to the end. It sounds like Jesus to me. However, John Gill denies that and James Fawcett Brown deny that. And they say that it's God that strengthens us. And they quote 2 Corinthians 1, the next letter, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Now it is God who strengthens us. Well, what difference does it make whether it's God or Jesus? The point is, is that we're going to be strengthened by either the first person of the Trinity or the second person of the Trinity until the end of the Jewish age. So you're going to be blameless. Again, this is the Corinthians now going to be blameless. Paul has got a lot of high hopes for these people that have all their problems. Blameless? All right, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and finish it up. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful? How is God faithful? To keep Christians strengthened to the end, as he mentioned in the previous verse. God's faithful to do that. Paul also tells the Thessalonians the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who called you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God doesn't let you down. God will never let his people down. He will never leave you nor forsake you, as the author of Hebrews says. God is 
we have been, the Corinthians were called by him, by God, into fellowship with his son. The first person of the Trinity called the Corinthians into fellowship with the second person of the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does fellowship mean? That's one of my favorite Greek words, koinonia. It's translated variously as communion. For example, the communion that we, the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine and the meal, that's called communion. That's koinonia. Participation. Will you participate with me in in my ministry, I can't think of a verse off the top of my head, but sharing, whenever you share money with somebody, it's called koinonia. Fellowship is called koinonia, as it is here. That's a common translation. We are called into participation with his son. We are in union with his son. We are in Christ. We are in union with him. And Jesus cannot be in union with sinners, folks. We are saints. We are not sinners. We are in fellowship and in union with him. All right. We're finished with the first section of 1 Corinthians 9. I hope you enjoyed it. Next audio, we will start with verse 10 and talk about all those terrible divisions that were in the church of Corinth and Paul's exhortations against that. Hope to see you next time.